Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, February 16th, 2024. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we're about to air my interview with Matthew Creighton. Before we get into things, here's a quick note from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Today on TPT, we are joined by Matthew Creighton. Matthew is the founder and principal of Publitix, which is a political consulting, strategy, and media company that focuses on strategy, communications, public relations, and public affairs. He's been working on projects on the political side of the clean energy space, specifically the political risk that clean energy faces today. Matthew Creighton, welcome to the planet today. Thanks for having me. We are very excited to have a fellow Matthew on the podcast. Always a, a welcome addition on my end. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, let's uh, let's start this one from the beginning. What first got you interested in this whole sphere of environmentalism, sustainability, and public policy? Sure. So, I, you know, I think it's a natural extension of uh, you know our, our interest professionally uh, in in politics uh, and, and working in this space, but then also uh, you know a personal interest in in the fact that you know we need a planet. To live on, uh, so that's mm-hmm. you know incredibly important. Um, and I th- and you know I tend I tend to gravitate toward uh, issues or, or the issues that really truly in- interest me are the ones that are are very complex from a communication perspective too. And climate is extraordinarily complex to communicate uh, to to the general public. Um, so so that's why. Uh, you know, I sort of gravi- gravitated toward toward that space. Um, in addition to just having having some projects early on and, and throughout our, our careers, or my career, and uh, th- you know, throughout the course of, of uh, running uh, politics, uh, we, we've had the good fortune of, of doing a lot of different uh, work in the conservation space, um, environmental space, uh, resiliency, uh, climate. So, so those things have, have been gratifying because uh, for for some of those, uh, at least initially. Or, or in, in short order, you can actually see the difference in in what you do, right? So if you're doing like conservation uh, finance measures uh, and you pass it, and uh, you know particular jurisdiction sets up a, a, a trust fund for open space, uh, you can see the fruits of those labor. You know uh, parks, uh, conservation mm-hmm. of, of farm, farmland. So there are a lot of cool things that you you see. So the, that's uh, that's sort of how how we got into the space. It's also such a tough, slow process sometimes, and then. You know, once you have that breakthrough and you're able to see, you know, the fruits of your labor, like you'd mentioned, conservation and and really just anything involving environmental policy and, and policy in general is so rewarding because you do see that impact on people's lives, the environment, the city that you're working with. It's it's a real tangible 
I made a difference here. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of, and that's it's it sort of cuts both ways too because in in this sort of space there there are things that feel like tomorrow problems and and things that feel like today problems. Now all of it's a today problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in, in people who who study this and are paying attention um, understand that everything that we are facing now with climate and our environment is a today problem, but it feels like like some of this stuff feels like a tomorrow problem. Whereas clean drinking water, for example, mm-hmm. like if you have uh, lead pipes or contamination, your drink, drinking water supply, like that feels like a much more urgent thing that that touches you every day. You know, if you have to uh, buy special filters or buy bottled mm-hmm. water or all sorts of things. So, the, so there are uh, some interesting differences in, in, in those things too. So it's like, you know, there are rewards further down the road too with some of it, but you know, some things, again, like conservation measures, like you can see the construction of a park or see that you've cleaned up uh, you know, a, a, a super fun site or, you know, that you've, uh, are able to clean up a drinking water supply. So it's, it's definitely, uh, spans the spectrum between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in mentioning today versus tomorrow problems, I, you're right. You know, everything is a today problem, even if sometimes it, it doesn't feel that way. And I, I think the thing that I always come back to on that is if everything is urgent, then it almost feels like nothing is urgent because nothing, you know, it's not like everything can be this important and in this space that's wrong. Everything is very important. And that's where it gets kind of difficult to toe that line between how do we convey just how important this topic is and how important all of these issues that we're facing are without giving the everyday person who's not as tapped in. I don't know if fatigue is the right term, but, you know, getting tired of hearing us say this is so important and here's why. They all, all of the topics we're talking about are that important. Oh, for sure. Well, that, I mean, that's one of the, the big challenges that, that we face is unfortunately in the climate space, there's no one big solution. Mm-hmm. Like you're always kind of like chipping away at one thing or the other. I mean, if you're looking at decarbonization, right? Like electrification works in most cases, but then you have to figure stuff out for like 15 to 20% of, of you know, the rest of the economy, um, yep. So it's just like no one big thing. And even within electrification, there are a number of things that, that you can do in terms of, of uh, generating power, uh, storing power. So it's it's kind of interesting. It's, you know, so I think we kind of gravitate toward uh, as, you know, people, right, that this idea of like, we have this problem. So here's this one big idea or big solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how, how can we implement that? Uh, this so part of the issue with climate stuff is like that there are actually multiple uh, things that need to be done. And it seems like such a big task that I think to your point, it's very easy to check out yeah. from paying you know close attention to it. Cause it's like, okay, well it's so big. What can I do? You know? Yeah. It's, it's a good point. And you know, in, in talking about this, I'd like to get more into politics and I guess let's say what, led you career-wise into founding Publitics and then what does the day-to-day look like for you and for the rest of your team? All right. Yeah, that's, that's a, a really good question. So this is sort of like a, a, a typical kind of millennial story. So I graduated, uh, did my undergrad in uh, history, political science, uh, and I was destined to be a high school history teacher. Like that was, that was what I was going to do. Uh, mm-hmm. that's what I went to college for, did my master's degree in education, did the whole student teaching thing. Uh, but, uh, as, as I was graduating, so 2008 hit, right. And the financial uh, crisis, um, sort of took over and uh, I graduated in 2010, 2011, 
um, in New Jersey where, where I live uh, and went to school and was intending on, on getting into teaching. You know, we had a governor that did everything that he could to make everything worse, was cutting mm-hmm. school budgets and all sorts of stuff like that. So, you know, I came out, there weren't that many jobs uh, available. And, and then, um, you know, I started to realize that I, I wasn't terribly interested in, I, I like the teaching part. The active teaching is fun. Uh, helping, helping students was fun. The paperwork, the standards, all that stuff uh, was was getting pretty onerous, and and I could see myself mm-hmm. not really uh, wanting to, uh, you know, to continue continue to pursue that. So, like uh, I think a lot of people in in my sort of age cohort, I just took the first job that came my way, which had nothing to do with politics either. Uh, during grad school, though, I had done a graduate assistantship at uh, the Public Polling Institute at, at my university, Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, Public Mind Poll. Uh, where uh, I was able to see how polling worked and really got into uh, understanding how the public thinks about certain issues or certain uh, personalities or or politicians uh, or elected officials, right? So, mm-hmm. so that was my sur- uh, first, uh, I would say, like professional foray. There was still an academic element to, to it, but but uh, first professional foray. And then um, got my first job doing uh well, I was hired to do fundraising and alumni affairs, uh, m- myself and another gentleman uh, from, from my school, specifically for young alumni. So as you can imagine, that was a miserable task in the wake of a financial crisis. So yep. we would sit in this, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and this is a charitable uh, description uh, of uh, we, we would sit in a closet sized office. Uh, and, and we would be given lists of young alums to call through every day. And uh, again, as you can imagine, uh, the responses were less than kind. Um, mm-hmm. And there were some very creative things uh, that people told me to do to myself or <laughs> whatever as a result of those phone calls. So, <laughs> so, you know, that went on for about 10 months and then I got laid off and I was like, well, what, what am I going to do now? Um, so I, uh, I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to do, politics, like having no idea what the business of, of running a political consulting firm was. So I, you know, uh, hung a shingle and I was like, all right, I got to find a campaign or two to hire me. Uh, mm-hmm. Fortunately, I was able to find two campaigns that, that uh, were able to hire me. So one was a congressional race that I knew was going to be a loser. Uh, but none of the winning campaigns would ever trust me to do anything of substance or anyone like me to do anything of substance, no experience. But I was able to talk them into letting me do their social and digital media. Cause I, like I was young, right? So yeah. this is sort of like, you know, Facebook was becoming an electoral, um, you know, an electoral tool in a way that it hadn't before. And they were like, Oh, you're young. You must know exactly what you're doing. So I took advantage of that. I was like, yep, sure do. And yeah. <laughs> learned everything there was to know about digital media. And then I did a local race. We ended up winning the local campaign, uh, which opened some doors. Um, and then, you know, a little bit of serendipity and in, in meeting the right people and being able to network and, mm-hmm. um, you know, just kept doing campaigns from there. Um, brought, uh, met my partner in 2014 on a campaign. Uh, he came on board uh, that year after that. Uh, we started working on some some non-political stuff, and, but we've been rolling ever since. So doing doing campaigns since then. So I know that's a long a long story, but it is, um, that is what, uh, you know, so that's the sort of the origin origin story. Um, in terms of a day to day, it really depends on, um, depends on the day, which actually makes things really interesting. So some yeah. days we're, we're managing crisis. 
so, you know, you're just on the phone with clients trying to figure out how to respond to certain things. Other days you're pouring over polling data and, you know, putting together slide decks and trying to explain uh, how the public is, is thinking about particular issues. Other days you're, uh, we're cutting ads, you know, creating uh, television, uh, digital advertising, uh, running analytics and stuff. So it really, it really depends on, on the day on the client. Um, so it, a lot of variety. I am, I am never bored. I, I'll, I'll put it that way. And, and the team isn't too. And I'm very, very, uh, lucky to have such a good team, uh, to, we have, we have a fantastic group of people, uh, that, you know, that have come together to work on, on some pretty interesting, um, you know, some really interesting projects and, and, uh, and thorny problems is some of the more challenging stuff. I mean, that's, that's what we find interesting. So yeah, that's, that's the long version. No, that, that's, I appreciate the the thoughtful answer. And, you know, I, I think a job like that, it's gotta be so cool. Like you said, you're never bored. Like there's always new data to mull over and how do you adapt to your strategy? It's kind of like this living organism that you need to constantly take care of to make sure that it can succeed. And the, the it that I'm talking about here is maybe a client, maybe a campaign, but if you treat it like something that's always evolving, always updating, there, there's always more to do. And I think that's a really cool, interesting side of, of politics. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, um, we, we have like a little saying that we go by, uh, between our team is, um, is, you know, it's not about being right. It's about getting to the right answer. And, you know, mm. it's, so, you know, we really like to try to figure out how to, um, get to the most optimal answer. Cause I think there, there's a lot of sort of low hanging fruit. Sometimes it's not always the best thing. I, I think, you know, you just have to give the space to be wrong, to, to try stuff, to not figure. So it is, it is interesting uh, to, to do that. I always think it's funny too. When people ask me like, what do you do? It's like when my family is like, so what is it that you do? I'm like, well, you see <laughs> it's part polling. It's part, we do uh, advertising. It's like, so you do advertising. Yes. But we also do this other stuff like strategy and messaging and, and crisis communications. It's like, oh, so you do crisis communications. What does that mean? <laughs> so it's like it's like you do. I don't know. It's so it's funny to try to explain that to people exactly because there is a lot of variety for sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to move into clean energy a bit because I know that that's a, a topic that your team works on and it's a topic that listeners of the show are, are very either interested or familiar with. So. What do you see as some risks that clean energy faces politically? And we could say here in the United States where we're both based or even globally. Sure. Yeah. So we think about political risk um, as, as sort of the nexus of public opinion, public policymaking. So the, the sort of opinion of, of the policymakers and the people that are in positions to make decisions and geopolitical risk. Um, so, and, and so you throw all those things together and you have uh, a number, a number of risks. So, so there's a sort of, uh, on, on it, on the surface kind of political risk in that, you know, we have, uh, elections in this country and we choose a president, uh, every four years, we choose members of Congress every two years. And then, um, you know, members of the Senate on six year staggered terms. Um, and any change in the control of any of those, those branches of government, the legislative branch or the executive branch could result in a massive shift in, in policy, uh, for, for clean energy. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, and, and not to get too political, like too is sort of baldly political, but I think, you know, this year, uh, there is a very clear choice on the ballot between, um, you know, admin- an administration that has, 
generally uh, shown itself to be very responsive to, um, you know, very responsive to the the climate crisis in many ways and uh, mm-hmm. working to get some big legislation and, and big investments through uh, another rise hostile climate or uh, Congress rather. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have on the other side, um, at, at best, uh, a, a party that doesn't necessarily have any particular plan at worst is opposed to a lot of these climate measures, right? Like you heard, um, you know, you see all this stuff about, uh, for example, um, you know, the, the encouragement of electrification of stoves, right? Use that for, for one, yeah, that became such a hot button and no pun intended, but a hot button, (laughs) hot burner, uh, issue where, um, where it, it, it really wasn't what they, no one was saying they're, they're going to come in and confiscate your, your stove, right? Your it's not going to happen. Yeah. Like, the, you know, there, there were incentives and other things to, to encourage the manufacture and uh, the, the affordability of electric, electric stoves. And that's good for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. It's good for the environment, but it's also good for micro environment in the house too. Right. Yeah. Um, where, uh, you know, you're, and I, and this, I say this as a gas stove owner, uh, didn't know any of this stuff, but like as, as you read up on it, it's not great what you're breathing in when you're burning those things. So, yeah. I mean, and again, your choice, if you want to breathe that stuff in, go ahead, by all means, that's awesome. But, um, but it became like such a political hot button uh, and, and sort of a rallying cry for, for one side of the political spectrum. It's like, you know, the fear mongering mm-hmm. the headlines, Oh, they're going to come take your stoves. Then it became like the, you know, you're gonna have to pry my, Probably my uh, gas stove out of my cold, dead hand, you know, like the, the old sort of Second Amendment, you know, NRA stuff, but for yeah. stoves. So that's, I think, illustrative of of the sort of issues that we're running into. And that's one very, very small piece of, of the puzzle. But but then when you're talking about, um, you know, bigger things like offshore wind, for example, yep. uh, in New Jersey, where, where we're from uh, and all up and down the East Coast, uh, there were all sorts of issues related to offshore with sighting offshore wind. Um, and suddenly a lot of people who uh, were never concerned about marine life were suddenly very concerned about whales. Right. And, yeah. and so, you, so we saw um, this sort of not in my backyard, you know, NIMBY sort of thing, uh, I was hoping you were going to yep. bring that up. Oh God! If not, I was going to try to get into that. Well, let me tell you. So, so on, and and I'll say like there are actors on both sides of the political spectrum who are hundred sure. percent guilty of of this NIMBY nonsense, and and sure. um, and it's a problem that 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 we deal with a lot in in different different ways. Um, so uh, yeah, so offshore wind was like a big issue. So it was like cloaked in this like concern about whales um, and. And the issue with uh, with that was it actually was like there were groups, uh, fossil fuel groups fueling some of this, actually like spending money to organize what looked like yeah. grassroots groups. And then ultimately what it boiled down to is like a lot of people just weren't interested in looking at offshore wind turbines. Right. It had nothing to do with the whales. No one took uh, a, a minute. to. And the hard thing about so this is this kind of delves into like communicating science. But the mm-hmm. thing with science is that if you're communicating certainty, that's almost like malpractice, right? Because science is a process of an iterative process of, of having a better understanding of the world around us. And yeah. so for someone to go out there and say like this 100% wasn't, you know, related to the, to the, the whale, uh, the whales beaching, this is a hundred percent not related to the, um, the, the offshore wind uh, surveys that they were doing. Mm-hmm. 
you can't, I mean, as a scientist, it's really tough to say something like that, yeah. right? Because, because it's like, you can be pretty sure, but that's not very satisfying. So it leaves this big vacuum for all these bad actors to jump into that aren't really interested in figuring it out. They're more interested in just like using the issue, but um, but yeah, the, so the NIMBY thing is a huge issue for, for a lot of things. We, we also had a client, um, who, what, so this is another thing that drives me nuts. <laughs> so in, in New Jersey, like, and again, I go back to New Jersey as this, but, but a lot of places are like this where they have home, home rule kind mm-hmm. of issues, right? So you have very small municipalities, like, you know, mayor, a mayor and council and a zoning board and a planning board that govern 5,000 people in some cases, mm-hmm. like just a tiny minuscule amount, which would be unthinkable in certain parts of this country where you have much, much larger municipalities. But um, shockingly, those people, those four or five, six, seven people, depending upon how, how the local government is structured, have a massive amount of power over whether or not to cite certain things. So we were working with a, a client to cite a, um, a composting facility. Talk about mm-hmm. innocuous, right? The most innocuous thing you can imagine. Composting, right? We do mm-hmm. it. I do it in yeah. my backyard. Um, a lot of people do it in their backyards. It's, it's, but this would have been on, on a, a large scale. Um, in a place where literally you could throw a rock and hit a fertilizer or chemical factory, really interesting stuff. Right. So people are like not too upset about that, but super upset about this dump. Right. It became a question of like, Oh, they're going to put a dump in next to our house and all, you know, our homes. And like, what, what is the, uh, you know, it's going to ruin the water quality, by the way, the water quality out there is terrible anyway, because they're not on city (laughs) water. They're on well water. There's PFAS, there's all sorts of nonsense and there and uh, contaminants in the groundwater. Uh, but they're worried that composting, uh, ultimately, which which would have taken place on farmland where they're using uh, currently fertile, non-organic fertilizers yeah. and pesticides, you're all of a sudden going to take all that stuff out. It's much cleaner, actually, to comp- compost. So we run into these issues, these NIMBY issues where you have people like they just they're fine with the idea of it, but they just don't want it near them in, in their yeah. backyard, which is a huge problem. Huge problem. I always find it interesting. So I, I'm from New York. I grew up in the Hudson Valley. I live in Manhattan now. And I always find it interesting how many people will talk about offshore wind turbines or when wind turbines onshore and say, oh, it's an eyesore. It's like, I, I don't know. I would much rather see a bunch of blades spinning and be like, oh, that's where my electricity comes from instead of a coal mine just emitting black smog into the air. So it's it's so tough with all the people who are like, yeah, it's a great idea. I just don't want to see it. Well, somebody's got to see it. Right. Like if I mean, it, you know, that's that's the thing about living in a, a society with other people is like the, the there's a good chance that you're going to live have to live near something else like yeah. you know, near a supermarket or near a wind turbine or near some solar panels. And I mean, and the alternative is so this is the, the sort of I, this idea of like short term thinking, too. It's like the short term thing is I'm going to see wind turbines. The long term thing is my coastal property is going to be inundated with water and worthless. Yeah. So really good point, (laughs) but it's hard to like conceptualize that, right? It's hard to conceptualize it because, um, and there's actually a really very real political divide too. When you look at the data on this and you ask people like, how are they experiencing increases in extreme weather? Mm -hmm. There is a significant partisan divide in whether or not people even admit there's been an increase in extreme weather or whether or not uh, extreme weather, particularly like even like right after it happens to them. Like I know for a fact we were polling people in an area that flooded Mm -hmm. like, and I'm not talking a place that normally floods, but like floods, you know, this may be a 50, 25, 50 year flood Mm -hmm. that's happening every five years now, every couple of years, really handful of years. 
and they'll tell you like some people who uh, answer these surveys will tell you I haven't my life hasn't been disrupted by any extreme weather and you're like well I know for a fact your house is underwater like the, yeah. you know the last two weeks was you know you're, you were bailing out your basement dude so what, what are we talking about but it's just like this partisan block uh, which mm-hmm. is really interesting it's like well you know this happens right and it's like okay it happens but not every, not every five years, right? Yeah. Not every two years, not even every year or twice a year in some places. So it's, it's really fascinating to see that, that sort of partisan lens applied to everyday experience too, where you're literally unwilling to admit, like, actually, I do think there's been an extreme, an increase in extreme weather in, yeah. in my area. And most places in the country, that is objectively true. The data yeah. bear that out, but. Yeah. And I think something that most people will probably be able to relate to on that is the last couple of years have been some of the hottest years on record. Last year, 2023 was the hottest year on record. 2022 before that. And I guarantee that a bunch of the people who are saying, oh, you know, there hasn't really been an increase in in extreme weather. I don't know what you're talking about. Guarantee they picked up their phone and called a friend or a family member. was like, man, sure is a hot summer, isn't it? Like, it's been a hot week. Oh, it was hot yeah. last week too. Like, we're having these conversations. It's just kind of connecting those dots and saying, if every single summer is way hotter than the one before it we're probably ex- experiencing a trend in that direction. And, you know, it's, it's hard to make that connection for some people. It, it is. I, I think of it a little bit like if you spend every day with, with another person, you're not going to notice them aging as much. Whereas if you see them once every 10 years, uh, when you see them mm-hmm. the next time, you're going to be like, wow, you've changed a bit. Maybe you have a bit more gray, gray hair or something. It's, and that's going to be way more noticeable to you. And it's like, Mm-hmm. That's the thing. So if you're you're having, um, you know, successive summers where it just get, gets a little bit hotter and a little bit hotter and a little it's like you almost don't notice it until uh, you're literally melting. Uh, but then the other issue, too, is if you get a short reprieve from any of that, like winter mm-hmm. comes around and it's it's like tolerable again. You people forget <laughs> people forget like the pavement outside yeah. their house is melting. You know, it's it's yeah. really wild. Um you know, how, how that, how that works. Um, so the, the human memory is, is crazy. It's just like you, you kind of, uh, cast, cast aside some of these emotions and feelings. I mean, cause no one likes being that hot, right? Like this whole wet bulb idea, right. That's going to be terrible. I mean, yeah, it's not, fun. no, no, <laughs> not at all. I love sweating when I'm exercising, but when I'm just like sitting and existing and I just sweat from the, the temperature being way too hot, not my favorite. No. Not at all. Not at all. Same here. Let's start with just public sentiment today. And and I know we've been kind of alluding to this, but would you say that most people tend to be pro clean energy or, or is it still kind of, I don't know if stigmatized is the right word, but are we still kind of fighting an uphill battle? So I I think most people, the majority of, of, of Americans recognize that there is a climate crisis, right? So I say there are partisan differences in there, and that's true. Like the, where you do see the differences, mm-hmm. a lot of that falls along along uh, party identification or I- ideological lines. Um, but a majority of Americans do realize there is a climate problem. Now, what does that mean to people? That's a little bit different, right? Or how salient that issue is, yeah. is a little bit different, uh, a different and, and actually kind of a harder question to answer a little bit. Um, in terms of clean energy, again, same thing is I think most people in principle are perfectly happy to transition to clean energy. The question is, what does that mean? Yeah. To a lot of people, right? So, so this was, this was kind of an interesting thing that we looked at in, in some recent polling was 
you know, whether people, whether or not people wanted to increase or decrease certain forms of energy, right? So like, if you look at natural gas, for example, um, do you want to increase, decrease, keep the same? A lot of people say keep the same because they have that. Now, some people like want to decrease. Those are the people who like really have climate on their mind and they understand what this is all about. And the people who don't are the people who don't necessarily think that, that, um, you know, extreme weather has increased in any meaningful way or, or that they've been impacted in any meaningful way by extreme weather. So that is, um, so, so, but in the middle, you have a lot of people who don't have a reference point for what any of that means. Right. So like, just yeah. keep the, keep the same. I, I mean, I guess that sounds good. Right. And when you think about natural gas, right, you don't actually see what that all entails, right. For the yeah. most part, unless you're, you know, in, in some of these areas where they're doing some fracking or, or, um, actually extracting the natural gas or, or live right next to a power plant. But that's, that's a, a significant, but not huge portion of the population. And for most of us though, we flip the light switch and the lights come on and we have no idea how that power gets here. We have no idea how it's generated. Is it nuclear? Is it gas? Is it hydroelectric? I don't know. It just kind of happens like whatever. Out of sight, so, out of mind. Exactly. So for that, it's a little harder. Offshore wind, same thing. It's like a lot of people will say keep the same because they don't really, or, or, or wind in general, they don't really have an idea of, of what that actually means up close. Now, the interesting mm-hmm. thing is you see a higher uh, level of support, or at least in some of our, our surveys, we've seen a little bit of a higher level of support for, for increasing solar. And my hypothesis, I can't tell you for sure. I mean, this is something that we're definitely going to want to dig more into. But the hypothesis is that solar is something that is up close and very much related to your daily life because you can get solar panels on your roof. You can't yeah. necessarily stick a wind turbine on your roof, though they are developing some turbines that, that the, could the micro ones like, that I've seen. Yes, yeah, which are interesting. Which yeah, the cool. backyard turbines. Yeah, I hope. I mean, God, we got to do everything, right? We got to do everything yeah. that we can. Um, you know, including that. But I think like a lot of people do have a personal experience or have some intuitive sense of, of solar panels, right? So you put the solar panels on your roof, then you look at the bill that you get every month and you see how much energy you generated versus how much you're pulling off the grid. That's a very concrete thing to people. So do you want to increase solar? That seems very innocuous. It's, it's on your neighbor's roof. It's on the guy down the streets, you know, so it could be on your roof. So I think there's a much more concrete uh, sense of what what solar is in particular uh, versus, um, you know, versus some of these other forms of energy, which which can be a little bit more uh, challenging to to communicate around. So um, so are people supportive? Yes. The question is, like, how do we get there? I think there's a lot of disagreement on how we get there and actually not a whole lot of context around how we get there. Uh, so, so that's, that's a big thing I, I think that, that we have to answer. So it's not so much the, like, do, do we agree that we need to, I think most people agree. And then there's the question of affordability too, which is like a big, a big thing that a lot of people are thinking about right now is like, you know, do you, so a lot of people say they'd rather balance the transition to clean energy with, with maintaining affordability. I'm not, now those things aren't mutually exclusive. Like we obviously know that that's not the case, but I think there might be a perception that, uh, clean energy could be more expensive in certain circumstances than the not. So, um, you know, so it's, it's like, uh, we know we have to do this or no, or like are relatively supportive of doing it. We just don't know how or what that looks like or what specific policy measures. And then if you start digging into, you know, specific ways to get there, those, those different element things have different levels of support. Yeah. So then it's like, all right. And that's what I mean by, 
you know, it's, it's a big problem that requires a thousand different solutions to actually get to, get to the place that, that we need to be. I, uh, I listened to one of um, your previous episodes, right. Where, where they were talking about that big uh, solar, um, the, the solar shield that oh, they yeah, want to shoot in space. in space or theoretically. Yeah. And it's like, we're never going to, I don't think we're ever going to get to that. Yeah. I don't think so either. That, like one big solution. <laughs> so I think that's the issue that we run into. And when we were talking about that, we were like, you know, what, let's just end this on a fun one, like get people talking, but is it realistic? Who knows? And the the big thing that I wanted to bring up with that was we have a bunch of different solutions that we know will work if we dedicate our time, our money, our resources into doing it. And there are so many different climate solutions that we have in front of us that we know if we have more of this, less of this, 100%. we'll get to a better place. So 100%. That was awesome. I, I had a really good time talking to you. I learned a lot. I'm hoping the listeners are going to learn a lot as well. If people want to keep up with you, if people want to keep up with Publitics, where is the best place for them to sure, do Sure, absolutely. So uh, LinkedIn is good. Uh, we're, we're pretty active on LinkedIn. And uh, my team tells me that we need to be more active on Instagram and TikTok. So you can find us there. We're trying to, we're trying to do that a little bit more. Um, also, uh, we are starting to publish some of our research uh, more publicly. So we're going to have some new data on uh, ESG and, and climate on uh, influenceiq.publitics.com. So that's that's our uh, sort of uh, blog where, where we take a look at um, at uh, at different issues like like climate change. We just did a, a survey on young voters and, and all that stuff. So those are the uh, those are the spots to the, the main spots to, to check us out. Awesome. If you're listening right now, swipe up. They, those are going to be in your show notes and go follow Publitics on Instagram, on TikTok if you have one, uh, LinkedIn, and check out that website. Matthew, we end every single interview with three fun rapid fire questions. Sure. You ready? Let's do it. Number one, what is your favorite animal? Favorite animal. Uh, so I have two wonderful cats uh, at home. So I, uh, I, I can't imagine uh, any, anything better. So I got I to gotta stick with them. I'm team, team cats. <laughs> As as a fellow cat father to uh, to two wonderful cats, I, I can confirm that. <laughs> Number two, what is something that you do to be more sustainable in your own life? Uh, so, I, mean, I I just try to do better in every way. One big thing, uh, and this wasn't exclusively a, a sustainability thing, but I'm I'm mostly vegetarian, eat some fish, but like I, I pretty much have cut out like all red meat and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm, you know, doing that. I think that has a pretty big impact uh, out of all the stuff that I do. Absolutely. And last one, what is one topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Ooh, that's a good question. One topic uh, that I mean, I, I think the, the, right, the, the big thing for me is not so much an awareness thing, but, but a, a matter of, of weighing perspectives and, and really understanding the stakes of electoral politics on, um, electoral politics on, on our ability to solve some of these big issues like climate change. Uh, so that, that's what I would say is just be aware of, of the choice. It's, um, because there is a choice, right? And you got to make one. Uh, and and I would encourage, yeah. you know, to, to make the better choice uh, for the climate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, we will link everything in the show notes. If you're listening now, go check it out. Thank you again. Thank you. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. We'll be back next Friday for another episode. Thanks again to Matthew for his time today. 
Check out our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT until next week. And also make sure to swipe up, hit the links in your show notes to check out all of Politics Socials as well. For the Planet Today, I am Matt Norton. See you next Friday.